Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 150 of Life and Lessons. This week, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Floyd Woodrow. Floyd is a former member of the SAS, a leadership coach and the author of the book, The Warrior, The Strategist and You. In the next hour, you're going to learn how Floyd became one of the youngest ever members of the SAS and how he remained composed in difficult situations, despite recognizing that he wasn't always the strongest in his group. Why the fear found in life and death situations is no different to the fear found in other difficult situations and what we can do to overcome it. The importance of getting out of your comfort zone and questioning your abilities to get more done with your time on this earth. Floyd's compass for life and how you can apply it to your life and so much more. This conversation is a really interesting one. Floyd fascinates me as somebody who has had such a distinguished career in the military, but then also gone on to do so much in the world of business. Listening to him pull together the insights, the the similarities and the differences from those two worlds, peppered in with his personal experience to show us what is possible if we are that bit more intentional and that bit more decisive with what we want to do from our lives. This is a great conversation. I know you're going to get a lot of value from it, but just before then, if you are new here, do make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening right now. There are guests which blow my mind coming up very soon on this podcast. We've got Thomas Frank, we've got Ali Abdul, we've got Danny Buck, we've got Moshe Bar, we've got David Robson, we've got some more incredible guests who are just about to confirm. And of course, next week, because this is episode 150, I'm going to be doing 150 episode Q&A. You don't want to miss that either. So to make sure that you don't miss any of the great things that I've just spoken about, if you haven't already, take four seconds now, scroll up on whatever app you're listening to this on, and just make sure that you're following life and lessons. But in the meantime, here it is. Episode number 150 of Life and Lessons with Floyd Woodrow. Floyd Woodrow, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure, Sean. Honestly, a real pleasure. Now, I've been excited for our conversation today for a little while because we were just talking before we began recording. And I said that people who have lived a lifestyle such as yours fascinate me because I've been on this self-development train for a few years now. And in the books I read and the content I consume, I hear time and again that military training, that the lifestyle that somebody like you has had to go through to build your career and to build your life is almost a cheat code in how we can go about unlocking so many of the things that we strive for in life. And so that's kind of where I want to begin. Can you give me an overview of the two halves of your career, how you got to where you are today and how one half of that life has led into the other? Uh, Of course I can. It's a really interesting question about having a cheat code. Um, I think fundamentally, just to come to that one point is that there are a number of stages to anybody's development, and you will see the crossovers as I go through this anyway, Sean, that we all need to have. But of course, living a life where you are put under pressure, you are constantly challenged and tested, you're learning new skills, it does help accelerate that. So my journey started as a, a, a young uh, a young man. I joined the parachute regiment for four years, the special air service. Uh, when I was 22, um, I went right the way through the ranks and I finished as the head of the counter-terrorist wing. During that time, I did some great jobs. I was a sergeant major. I was in charge of operations. I was in charge of the counter-terrorist wing um, and I did um, operations around the world. So I was very fortunate 
to have worked in most environments, which gave me uh, a different look at different environments and different challenges. Um, I studied law and psychology. I did lots of other skill sets. So I was constantly learning, constantly developing my skills, learning how to communicate, how to negotiate. I did the National Negotiators course. So all of these um, elements alongside meeting some very talented people, some people who were mentors, coaches, and really gave me a great insight into performance. Uh, I also ran SES Selection for two years. So again, understanding how to train and develop people was always at the forefront of my mind. Um, fortuitously, um, I always knew I'd probably leave the, the military, so I prepared myself to make that transition. And I went into business in 2008. Uh, and I went into a number of different adventures, again, going into that classic understanding that being out of your comfort zone is probably the best way to learn, to gain experience. I wanted to see if I could transfer the leadership skills to business. And I went into a number of different organizations, foreign exchange, media, security, and some tech, um, some high-level tech um, equipment, um, as well as starting my coaching and development organization. And then again, I learned how to work with CEOs across every business sector, international sports teams, and in education alongside NHS, prisons, and things of that nature. So again, I've had a really good career in understanding what that development means and how to develop as an individual and the key competencies that I think anybody needs to have a fulfilled life. I think life's a journey. I think it is about experience and adventures. And then I think it's about you just developing constantly uh, just to keep pushing the bounds of your performance. And that's probably in a brief synopsis of my journey from military to business and to helping people um, in the field that we're both in. Something you touched on in your answer there is SAS selection, which over recent years, I'm sure I don't need to tell you, has kind of pierced its way into mainstream culture through television programs. And when somebody like me watches that on TV, I see the physicality of it. I understand that physically that is challenging, but I imagine something that I can never truly appreciate is the mental challenges of a selection process and then indeed of being in a military operation. I imagine you have had to teach yourself all sorts of tools to overcome that mental resistance, mental resistance that we all feel in life through one degree or another. Do you have any tools that can help us overcome mental challenge? Yeah, fundamentally, you need both physical and mental resilience strategies. They need to be combined. I don't think you can have one without the other. Um, I, I will just say straight off that the program that you see does not represent SES selection, in my opinion, in any way, shape or form. Um, because I don't, I don't think it quite mirrors what I would, um, what I certainly went through, nor indeed what I wanted to have happen when we were running selection, as an example, just to get that out there straight away. What you need to be resilient is you need physical resilience, first of all, because without it, you'll be tired, you won't think correctly. And that's based on some key components. The first one is sleep, making sure that you're recharged, you have energy, and there's lots of research now that suggests it's between seven and nine hours, so let's say eight on average, and which is about correct. And that's just to make sure the body, the mind are recharging, and that helps in all aspects of life. Second key one is going to be hydration. You've got to be hydrated. Water plays a major part in our, our body, um, our brain, 75%, blood, um, 83%, um, every major organ, 70% plus water. So therefore, 
you need to be hydrated. And that's probably the game changer. When you're hydrated, mood, concentration, energy goes to another level. Simple. That's a simple cheat. Um, the next one is movement. We're, our bodies are designed to move. And I think that's really, really important that we've got to make sure that we stretch, that we go on walks as a minimum, and anything else is a plus. Training in the gym, running, all the other elements just enable you to make sure this phenomenal machine is operating at the right and uh, the right speed. Nutrition, again, fundamental, your diet and making sure, again, you have energy. You're minimizing the processed food and the sugars that we get when we go to the supermarket. Again, you've got a balanced diet. That's not about being a monk or a nun that sits on a hill. That's about just making sure that you are looking after the system because you've got to have energy. It's what the Dalai Lama calls wise selfishness. And then mindfulness is about relaxing. It's about being in the now. It's not about having a mind that's just clear. It's just about understanding where you are and having balance in life. It's essential that you have physical resilience in order to have mental resilience. Because as I said, without it, fatigue just makes us make the wrong decisions. When you are 1% dehydrated, your brain shrinks. So therefore, again, you're not going to make great decisions when you're completely exhausted during a day. Mental resilience is about understanding the brain is a, a phenomenal machine. And it's about asking it big questions, in which case you'll get big answers, as a friend uh, of mine called Marcus Charles always says, it's a supercomputer. The key thing for me is strategies. One strategy won't give you everything, but by having layers of strategies is really important. The first one is self-talk. How you speak to yourself affects your state, affects your performance. Really important that that's positive. I use power words, courage, resilience, determination, power phrases, opportunity to see how good you can be. And, and what I'm doing there is I'm just getting myself up to a higher level of performance because I'm talking in a confident way. Remembering why we're successful, positive anchors, going back in time, remembering why I was successful and replaying those thoughts are really important. Those images, creating the environment, the people that were around you having people to support you, so having friends that can say you're in a good spot, what I call a critical friend, just making sure they're giving you the reality check that you need as well, very important. Visualization, imagining what you want to succeed. Creating a picture is probably one of the most powerful mental resilience strategies you can have. When you can visualize what you want, you can imagine yourself there, you get the feelings, you get the beliefs, you see the colors, the people, very, very powerful. And that's used with people with PTSD to Olympic athletes, a good, powerful tool. Breathing, probably one of my go-tos, being able to breathe efficiently, effectively, can calm the system down, can heighten your awareness, can help your sleep patterns. There are books written on breathing. I'd suggest it's a go-to thing to do. Again, to make sure you're using things that you can apply, trusting yourself, decision-making. When you can use these systems and you can layer them, you, what it means you can do is at a moment's notice, because I know how to practice those things, it just means I play them over and over again. And then all of a sudden, I don't get um, into an, an, an anxiety state. I've already prepped, preempted it. I've started the process. I'm thinking about what I want to achieve. And the biggest one is I'm not scared to fail. 
I think this is probably the key thing that undermines most people. I don't mind making a mistake. I've gone past trying to prove that I'm the best person in the world. That, that went a long time ago. And I don't have, for me, it's the happiness thief when you try and judge yourself. Having envy is probably one of the worst values you could possibly have. And I think when you can get into a point where you're just looking to be better than you were last week, the world changes because anybody can be better than they were the last week. And I only need to be 1% better. And then all of a sudden, all of these skill sets enable you to really perform well. Given what we see on TV, which you say is, for want of a better word, disingenuous, does it surprise people when you go into an organization and they have this view of the man from the SAS and he's going to make us do all this crazy stuff? And then you say, actually, it's, it's hydration, it's sleep, it's rest, it's mindfulness. It's these fundamentals that, that we know we ought to be doing that make all of the difference. Do people actually think that this is too simple? There must be a, a greater unlock somewhere that you're not telling us about. Uh, yeah, they do. And I think it's one of those, uh, again, phenomenal things. In it, and you know, it's the simple things in life. It's basic things done exceptionally well. Uh, I was taught by a brilliant instructor who just said, look, Floyd, advanced training is basic things done really well. And that's all you need. The difference between the most talented people in the world is one or 2%, usually determination, uh, a desire to keep learning, practice, it's very rare I come across anybody that I just go, they're a genius that didn't need anything and they don't need to do this stuff. That does not happen. Most of the successful people are simply just trying to be better than they were, as I said last week. They're trying to improve. They practice. That Those are the great, um, the great elements that transforms performance. Simple things. Well, something interesting about your story is that I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you were one of the youngest ever members of the SAS when you entered. And so I'm making an assumption here, but you could well have felt imposter syndrome, right? You look around you, there are people who are older and so on. I've had some interesting chats recently with people like Paul Moore, who has a very interesting take on imposter syndrome and whether or not it did or didn't apply to you in that situation. I think we've all had situations where we feel like we're maybe a bit too young or a bit too small or a bit too underqualified or whatever it might be. What methods have you picked up to make sure that in the moment when it matters, you feel like you actually belong? I tell you what's really important. We'll always have it because there's always people that are just really good. And if you're um, in the right mind frame, you should surround yourself with people that are talented and probably better than you are because that usually enables you to raise your game. I think the key thing is, is when I was in, there's no two, no two ways. The, uh, I was not in the top 10% or the top 20% or even the top 30%, they were stronger, fitter, more experienced than I was. But that was a given. But I think the key thing is, is what I've always been probably fortunate to do is, but I knew what I was good at. So whilst I couldn't beat a lot of them on lots of things, there were lots of things I was particularly good at. And therefore, all I had to do was concentrate on my super strengths. I think that's probably really important. Um, I, I tend, I, I've always tended not to worry about my weaknesses in that respect. And what I look at is the one thing that I definitely need to do differently. So I work on one weakness at a time, but I don't get hung up by what I can't do. Um, so I think that's probably one of my strengths. Plus, I practice. So when I'm not good at something and I know that's going to help me be better, I practice really well. So I think in that respect, I just automatically assume there are people that are more talented than me. And so I'm not ever trying to beat them as such. And um, what I'm trying to do is really just make sure I'm going to make myself to be 
as good as I possibly can be in a particular situation. And as I said, I'm very determined. So the biggest skill I've had in those is just to practice to get better and more see that as a really great challenge. I I think where I see people when they're super talented is I want to be like them and I want to look at the skill sets that they've got. And so my mind, I think my my mental state has always been to talk and talk to myself in that way. So whilst it's always going to be there, and in every job I've ever been in, I thought, goodness me, I'm certainly not the most talented in this role. But I've now learned to to take that as a really exciting thing. I get excited by doing something that I'm not good at. And I can give you an example of this. I was asked to do a conference the other day um, on a subject where I'm not an expert at all. But I do know experts in this in this particular area. So all I had to do was speak to them. I got the best advice I possibly could. And then I could I could go on and actually deliver something that was probably passable simply because I will use other people's experiences and I can once I understand the situation, I can probably articulate it and communicate it um, okay. And um, so I think that's it. I've always had a, a drive to learn and to look at people and not, again, I think there's a really great, and I like the word in the sense of always bringing it back, do not get envious of other people. And I think envy is probably one of the, the debilitators on many, many people trying to, or being envious of people rather than seeing things as, what a great opportunity to grow from it. And I think that's where you can switch um, imposter syndrome around and always just be clear. There are so many talented people in the world. Don't get hung up by that at all. Concentrate on what you're good at. Something you touched on there is the importance of knowing your ability. Now, again, correct me if I'm wrong, I could be butchering this, but I believe that whilst on military operations, you studied and passed a law degree. And then on the back of that, your first book, you wrote about almost that process and learning how to learn. So if the unlock in all of this is trusting our ability and we gain ability through learning, then how do we learn to learn? And again, for me, it's it's going on adventures and experiences, Sean. I think you take life as a journey. Every culture in the world talks about a journey. And what they talk about uh, is, and in literally every culture will talk about going on adventures, finding mentors, finding coaches, gaining knowledge, having adversity, failing, succeeding, giving back to society, going on another adventure. And so for me, it's always been exploring things that I find fascinating and things I've wanted to do. So I've written a children's book. Um, I've written some um, leadership books. I'm on another couple of books that I'm writing now. I'm learning the piano. I'm going back to some language. I just explore things I particularly like and wants to see how good I can be in those areas. But it's not about being um, going onto a stage or anything like that. It's just actually playing music because I enjoy that. How good I get will be dependent on the time I put into those subjects. And because I just want to explore these different things, I think that's where learning comes. Always be motivated, always be passionate about different things. But most importantly, Go through life exploring things. Time is the most precious commodity you have. And far too often, people fall into settling for where they are and what they're doing rather than just looking up and going, why would I not want to do something? And I think that's probably the biggest thing that I would suggest people should do is sit back, reflect on life and think about at the end of it, what do you want to turn around and say, you know what, I'm really proud I've done this. I've left a great family, my legacy has been about growth. Um, I followed some dreams and aspirations. 
and it's been a fulfilled life. And I think if you can do that quite often, rather than get caught up into day-to-day, week-to-week things, you'll maximize your time on this earth. And I think then if you give back to society as a community or on global issues, you've probably had a pretty good life. Rather than thinking, you know, on those last few days, thinking, well, was that the best journey? Now, everything proactive that we've spoken about so far is somewhat, in a sense, secondary to fear, because as soon as fear comes into the equation, at least in my personal experience, all of that positivity, all of that potential goes out of the window and we become crippled. Um, you know, we see all around us, whether it's somebody not taking that job interview because they're scared of what it might mean, not ending that relationship because they're scared of what it might mean, not starting that business. You have been in situations which, fortunately, I will never have to be in, right? But in being in those situations, in having to perform, you have had to come face to face with fear and still stay composed and still take the action. So what can we learn from your experiences facing off fear to each live a less fearful and more proactive life? Right. It's a really, it's a great way of looking at it, but I come back in because sometimes people say to me, look, Floyd, life and death scenarios are something I could never understand. Well, I'm going to disagree. And the reason I say that is because how the mind works. I've been in business situations where one of, one of the businesses that I run was um, potentially going to be taken over with a really aggressive takeover. We could have lost literally millions of pounds and people could have lost their jobs. It was a really traumatic moment in business. I would say that was as difficult a moment as anything I faced on a battlefield because it was going to be life-changing. So imagine you've spent literally 10 years of your life working on a project. It's about to come to fruition and then it's lost. And then you're going to have to go and start all over again. It's quite traumatic. And when you think about, again, the number of people that struggle in business and unfortunately go and do commit suicide, I'd say you've got to be really aware that the troubles that the mind can deal with, it's, you can't understand where that happens in some respects because being on a battlefield or in an office or various different elements, how the mind plays those things is just as significant. And of course, there's some great science, neuroscience on this. When we feel anxiety and worry, that can be as close to coming to why we think we fear death or anything else. The same parts of the brain light up. So the emotions can be the same. The key thing is, is to come back and realize that, that anxiety, fear are just explaining to you and your mind, your reptilian part of the brain, when it comes alive, is this threat. And that could be threat to your ego on one scale, to a business, to, again, your life at the other scale. But how we perceive it is probably similar. The key skills come right back to play. What are you trying to do? Having a vision of what success will look like, I think is fundamental. Why am I in this situation? What am I trying to do? And really focusing on a way through whatever the obstacles in the situation is. What, does it, what do I want this to look like? Then it's about the appropriate skill sets. Then it's about teamwork. Then it's about really putting in place, again, the systems I just went through, that physical, mental resilience, the support from people, and having clarity about what you now want to do in this situation. Because the situation still exists. The key element on this is usually talking it out openly getting some support, getting some thoughts, and then getting a little bit of clarity on what this actually looks like. And I always come down to a simple methodology. What are the facts? So far too often, 
in a world where we get tons of data, tons of, tons of anxiety and worry from the media, far too often it's just not true. It's just those, the information you've been presented or you've misinterpreted the information. Once you simplify things, generally it's never as bad or as good as you first thought. It's somewhere in the middle. And once you can then start to look at the facts, then I always look at it from a positive way of looking at the situation, a creative, dangers and risks, and then emotion. And then you've got to do something about it. I mean, it's no good waiting for this, to, this wave to roll over you. Then it's about what are the actions I can take and breaking the steps down into small, manageable chunks usually enables you a way through this to navigate out of it. And if you follow those procedures, every single time you come to a threat, what you're doing is minimizing the emotional tags that come. You're coming up with clarity of what I need to do. And then emotion can take you forward to make sure you're overcoming it. And I think you've just got to understand that finding your tools, your system and practicing it will definitely help. Far too often, though, we don't, we don't fully understand how our minds, body and our connection to the environment work. When you do, that's the cheat. The cheat is, look, everybody in the world feels, gets scared. I get scared. It's a fact. Um, yes, I don't want to make mistakes, but all I want to do again is I'm thinking about it. How can I just make the best out of this situation and then incrementally improve that moving forward on the worst scale? And I'd always come back to it. Fear exists and it should exist because then it means something means something. And I, I want to be scared because I want to be out of my comfort zone. And I think it's about creating that mentality of you will learn more about yourself in adversity than you ever will from walking down a straight path. And once you've learned it, that's where growth happens. Growth does not happen in your comfort zone. Growth happens outside of your comfort zone. So I would embrace anytime you're scared, I'd say then you're in the right space and all your dreams should scare you because if they don't scare you, they're not big enough. Just on a point that you made towards the beginning of that answer, uh, I had a personal reflection uh, of something that I did in my life. So I think I have been quite fortunate in as much as I've never really felt anything that I would describe as acute anxiety. There have been moments in business, I'm sure you know how it is with your uh, uh, the, the takeover, for example, where there are things that get on top of you a little bit, but you can kind of point to a cause and you're like, okay, I understand I feel this way because of this thing. But the beginning of this year, something just fell off. I couldn't put my finger on it. Um, and it was around kind of late February, early March time. And I was toying with this idea of removing the news from my life with everything that was going on in the news cycle at that point. And so I did it. I, I removed all digital news. Don't visit any digital news websites. Try to avoid journalists on Twitter, although it's difficult. And then if I'm feeling like I want an update on the world once a week, I will buy a physical newspaper on a Saturday and I'll sit there for 30 minutes. And it's magical just how much of that kind of ambient anxiety evaporated to give me the the clarity to actually focus on the important stuff. So in your personal life, do you have any little tricks that work for you, things that surprise you at just how effective they are at making you more focused? Uh, honestly, I think what you've just said there is absolutely brilliant. And, and I do something very, very similar. Um, so for me, it's about going on my phone at certain stages. So I don't, I'm not trying to scroll through um, every single device app that I've got. I think that really is, is, is one of the things I usually say about time. Um, what I like to do, and so again, from a health perspective, um, I do a lot of stretching, I do a lot of yoga and Pilates, and I find that helps balance. So physical fitness for me is a great way of clearing the mind. 
uh, and getting myself in a really good frame of reference. What I'm also doing, again, is thinking about what I want to achieve. So I literally will, um, on a Sunday, it's, I start to think about the week ahead and the week ahead um, on top of that. So two, two to three weeks ahead. What do I really want to achieve? And again, focus, I think, is really, really important. Um, what I normally tell people to do is look at their screen time. And when people tell me they can't find any time and I see them on and they've got four or five hours a day on the phone, it kind of really brings it home that you've just wasted. You imagine the amount of time you've wasted scrolling things that are, are just certain people's opinion or, as you've said, people out to grab headlines. I think that is probably the key thing is come back to what do you want to do with your time? And when you think you can learn to fly a plane in 50 hours, I just think there's loads of things that people can start to do by maximizing their priorities and where people spend their energy. That's where you prioritize life. And if it's on a phone, it's for you to think about that. And so I'd like to, to do it through that kind of um, realization about where you, where you put your energy. That's where your priorities are. And is it where you want your priorities to be? And most people, I think, would come to your conclusion. Isn't it great to be released from? loads of negative media, people out to grab headlines. And that probably is one of the, the areas where you can, you can dismantle um, negativity in your life. You spoke there about reaching your potential in life. So let's talk about your compass for life methodology. What is it? Um, so the compass, it's a, a, it's a program of lifelong learning, learning and development. And it's something I came across by literally working in so many different environments. I wanted to have a tool or uh, a system that can just bring it all together really quickly. So you can, when in our world, when you're looking at development, there's a thousand and one things out there, all of which I'd look at and go are really good. They're all beneficial. And if you utilize them in the right way, they will work. But because there's so many, it's hard to sometimes realize, well, how do I remember all of this stuff? How do I apply it? How can I apply it to a team and an organization? And then one day in my office, when I was doing some some brainstorming and looking at what that looked like. I just thought, actually, I always talk about a super North Star, which is about where you want to be in three, five, or 10 years. It's about having a really clear visual picture that can be as big as changing the world to as small as playing the piano. But it really is clear. It takes you forward on that journey. And that can be for your team or your organization as well. What does it actually look like? How will I feel? And when you have that in your mind, it's a powerful draw. It draws you forward without having to be dragged out of bed. South Cardinal strategy. How do I break that journey down into milestones? How do I make sure I use wisdom, common sense, and judgment, reply all the information that I get correctly? So it's about a directive and an emergent strategy, seizing opportunity, overcoming obstacles, taking responsibility, but very factual. East Cardinal's values, your characteristics, the things that drive you, team code of conduct, conduct, how do I take a team with me? And the West Cardinal is about being a warrior. Warrior is about skill sets and mental and physical resilience strategies. By having your compass in equilibrium and being able to articulate the four cardinals, I think it just gives you a great gateway tool to then add on all the magic that comes from that. So from a, a values perspective, I talk about influencing skills, communicating, culture, team codes of conduct. I can literally go deep into that area. Same with strategy. I use different mechanisms for people to understand how to break the journey down and to think critically about the journey. Obviously, mental and physical resilience strategies we've just gone through. And then, of course, 
understanding why having vision is important. And I can probably plug every book that's ever been written under a cardinal. And I think that means that it's a gateway tool. How deep you want to go is going to be interesting. The map becomes a visual representation. And then you get mind, body, environment, alignment. And I think once you've got that, your learning capacity and your ability to achieve those things is, is taken to another level. And I use that system with five-year-old children to business leaders around the world, every culture. I've done every religion, every major religion, and I don't have to change anything because it's intuitively correct. To navigate, to go on a journey, again, is embedded in human beings. I feel like perhaps something that is lacking from the uh, the self-improvement, the self-development space, whatever we want to call it here, is the idea of actually finding that North Star. Because I look around me and I see so many people who are doing for doing sake, because it's, it's better to be doing than it is to sit around and feel like you're not doing anything. But very few people actually know where they're heading and why they're heading there. So what is the role of this super North Star and how can we find our own? Right. So the key thing is for me is, is to reflect, Sean, is to take time out to sit and to really think about what are the key elements that motivate you what I would say is on my, my experience is if you sit back and really unlock these things, most people, most people do need because intuitively just allow that subconscious to come alive and you'll find out what you want to do. What you may stop yourself from doing is talking yourself out of it. That won't pay the bills. That will take me off in the wrong direction. My friends won't like it. My fam, you can give yourself a million and one reasons why you don't want a super North star. But the key thing is, is just to think, what is it that I'd love to do? What I would say then for those people that would say, well, actually, I still don't want to do, okay, is then go on adventures and experiences, explore life. When I was in the military, I just wanted to be a soldier. So I didn't need another super North star. Literally, I'll do the best I possibly can, can do. But what I also did was I went on to learn, again, languages. Um, I did a paramedics course. I studied and then I realized by going on these adventures, other opportunities came my way, other adventures. And then I decided I'm now going to explore these other things. So that's the key thing for me is, is that whilst I would probably say if people reflect and sit and think and really look at the things that they're passionate about, things they're interested in, it will open up avenues without a doubt. And the other key theme then is, is or then go out and find adventures to see what you don't like. What I would say is, is that things are not coming to you. So don't think there's some magical person out there that's just going to turn up and make your world a better place. That's not going to happen. If you don't go out and seek, and it's a classic thing on, I'm just thinking, just flashed into my mind there, who moved, who, you know, um, moving our cheese. I think it was by, um, I can't remember the exact one. It was um, who moved, moved my cheese. It's about actually going, stay in one space. That's all you'll see. Go on the adventure, go on the journey loads of other opportunities, people, mentors would come alive. Who moved my cheese? I think was the book. But again, it's about that ability. If you stick here, nothing will happen. Go out and seek. Opportunity will come your way. Plus, you'll meet different people. And networking, again, is one of those gifts. I've come across people that have opened up another world to me. And I think that probably is also fundamental, is these people just give you Again, experiences, adventures, you can admire them. And all of a sudden you can say, well, I probably could do that and, and try and see if that works. What's the role of ethos here? Uh, ethos is critical. So your character, the things that drive you, that fundamentally shape us, I think positive values driving you forward are really important because what it does 
it allows you to grow and grow into those values. I don't think anybody's going to be perfect. I think, you know, I look at the values that I hold dear. Sometimes I, I can turn around and go, I've been absolutely perfect in those values. Sometimes you've got to look at it and think, yeah, I need to make sure I, I don't forget why that's important. It's also to do with team code of conduct. You'll never get anywhere without a team. Therefore, values play a part in creating the right culture, the right team spirit in order to drive forward. So values, ethos, culture are fundamental in performance. And I think in also making sure that you become the person that you want to become, I think that is absolutely critical. And then we have the strategist and the warrior. Talk to me about the role of being a strategist in your own life. So being a strategist for me, it's really, uh, I've always got to work hard at strategy. Far too often I've been the warrior, which is just about going out and doing things and stepping into the arena and moving forward quickly uh, about action. Um, and I still have to be aware of that. It's something I find, um, you know, really is a, a great driver for me is to do that. But I'd also say that thinking back and being the strategist has been also fundamental, absolutely fundamental in making sure that what I'm trying to do is break the journey down, use facts, figures, detail, communicate that strategy really well, because that's got to be important. You've got to make sure that you take people with you. So communication is important, um, but it's just fundamental for success. And then finally, the warrior. This is the most interesting piece for me, because at least anecdotally, I look around me and people love to strategize, right? They love to plan. They love to tell everybody what they're going to do. They love to make these five-year plans and look forward and get that kind of, that bit of dopamine by feeling like they're going to do something, but, but actually taking the step and going to do something and having the ability to, to trust yourself as you do that, to be the warrior. What is the warrior piece all about in your book? And how can we each find that within us to go and do? So this is about strength of character. And I think this is the most important part about being a warrior. It is not about being big and tough. It is about your strength of character to fight to get to each of the milestones that you set yourself. And this is the differentiator between anybody that wants to be successful. It is about action, not intent. I think that's probably uh, when I look at this is that the most fundamental thing that I come across is when people just do not commit. Um, and I see super talented people who, who I, I look at and they could change the world, but because they don't commit, that's the downside. That's the downside to this is that they just, they haven't committed. Um, so what that just means is they're never, they'll just stay still. So the stepping off on the journey also for me starts to setting to chain all the other elements of the compass, um, where they, um, where everything comes together so you can drive things forward. It's interesting on this point of not committing because uh, I've spoken about this recently on the podcast, actually, that it, it seems to me like the reason why people don't commit to one path, why they don't begin to take action is for as long as you're stood still, you have this illusion that a bunch of different doors are open to you, right? That you can go down any path. But the second you take action and begin going down a path, it looks at least when you look back as if the other doors are closed. But all of those open doors mean nothing if you're not going through one. How do you help individuals, teams, business leaders actually just begin and take that action. That seems like the toughest piece in all of this. It is. It's the first step. And so what I try to make the first two steps are massively achievable. Um, not only achievable, um, you'll, you will succeed. So the first steps is real clear actions that they're going to take, that they can take, because two things happen here, Sean, for me is I need to know you really want to do this. Um, so therefore, I need to see you do something. I need to see you step out whether that's going for a, a five-mile walk or whatever it may be, 
but I need to see some sort of action so that once I've got that, what it allows me to do is think, right, now we can move forward. And when you get the dopamine hit, the endorphins, the serotonin, the oxytocin, the hormones are starting to fire. You will also know whether you want to do this journey. And that's the other key theme for me as well, is that sometimes I've been on journeys when I've realized halfway through, this is now not for me, which is great because then I can come back around and you're right, another door will open. But the adventure I've gone on, and for me, it's not the end result. It is the journey that's the key. Whether I succeed or not, well, time will tell. But I think the most important thing for me is, is that I've gone on the journey and it's the things that I've learned on the journey that makes me a better me. Now, I can't finish without asking you a big open-ended question and feel free to make this answer as long as you want, although you have already given a huge amount of insight, which I'm sure will play into this. But clearly you're somebody who has a huge amount of experience in performance and focus and intention in overcoming these these physical and these mental barriers. And these are challenges which everybody listening to this podcast in their own context wants to get better at, right? We're in a new year. It's 2023. Everybody's looking forward to how they can make this year their year, the year that they actually take steps towards that North Star, towards that goal, whatever it might be. So in as broad a stroke as you want to, um, what are the, the big bits of advice that you would give somebody in life with everything you've learned to do just that? So f- for me, the biggest one is again to sit down. Um, I will send you through a map, uh, Sean, that people can actually have a look at and potentially uh, use as well. But what I would do is sit down, get a lot of pictures from magazines, I start to dream big about all the things you want to do in a number of different areas. And I've got a great friend called Marcus Child. And, and when he's doing it, what, what we talk about is looking at it from a number of different things. From a mental perspective, mental resilience perspective, what would you like to do? What could you challenge yourself to do to go out and do something different where you can use your mental resilience strategies? From an emotional perspective, what do you want to do that's going to inspire you? What are you going to do where you can go on trips, adventures? meeting people uh, from a social perspective. What are the things you'd like to do? Um, what can you um, do from a spiritual perspective? Things that are going to really push the bounds of your performance and then a physical perspective. I think if you're looking at your life in all of those different areas and you have a picture of what you want the next year to look like, but more importantly, you create that picture. So going for a great holidays, doing some study, um, doing something on your job that's transformational, being innovative, you know, reading um, 100 books, cutting down on alcohol. If you really paint the picture and put it on the wall, you will be amazed at how successful you will be if you take the time to do it. And I mean, spend a day going around, getting every possible conceivable dream and ambition you'd really like to achieve, put it all down on a picture, and then put that picture on the fridge and then see what happens. Amazing. Floyd Woodrow, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. I'm going to make sure that your book, The Warrior, The Strategist and You is linked in the show notes below for anyone who wants to go and get a copy. In the meantime, if people want to go elsewhere to find you, to find your work, where can they go? Um, on the website, which is www.compassforlife.co.uk. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. Please connect. Amazing. Floyd, thank you so much.
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.